All right, let's get going. Grab a seat, grab a seat. All right. Here is, uh, here's what I'm after. I'm after the craziest, strangest, weirdest middle name in the room. That's what I'm after. The weirdest middle name in the room. Okay, who, who thinks they're a contender? Who thinks they're a... Nolani? What, what's your middle name? Bianca? Okay, okay, fair enough. Isn't that like a mouthwash or something? Or is that, but I don't even know. Can anyone beat, can anyone raise a Bianca? Anyone got one better, weirder, stranger? Hold on. Yeah, right over here. Mathry, that's right. That's my, that's my, my brother Dave. Middle name Mathry, kind of strange for sure. I mean, not you, but the name. You are as well in a good, in a good way. Marion, what's your middle name? Lynn. Lynn, that's a female name. <laughs> and fairly embarrassing. Anyone? Any other dudes in here that have female last names? Or is he the only one? Anybody? Is that it? Okay, you're, sorry man, you're on an island. You're on an island. All right, come on, there has to be one that's weirder than all those. Come on. Leroy. Leroy, there we go. There, oh, that's Lonnie, Pastor Lonnie Leroy. Hold on, are you, Lonnie Leroy Taylor? Who, uh, who, who's named Leroy? Okay, your grandfather and your father, and now it just got serious, so I'm not going <laughs> to. I can't make fun of you anymore. Leroy's awesome. Um, when we were um, getting ready to uh, birth our first son, there was uh, zero discussion about what his middle name would be. Um, and, and I was so excited to start uh, telling people what his middle name was because uh, his middle name represented something that was so significant in me. Though it's somewhat strange, um, my son's middle name, Dawson, is Bernie. Now, uh, Bernie, not taken after weekend at Bernie's, okay, for those of you that grew up in the 90s. Um, Bernie was the name of my grandfather, uh, who passed away in 1998. Uh, anyone who's been through the MV, anyone who's, who knows me at all, know how critical of a role my grandfather played in my life. He was... Uh, a rock, uh, a refuge, um, taught me so much about humility and servitude. Well, his wife uh, was just as epic as a, on the female side. And uh, man, she, after he died, uh, lived, flourished. Um, if you woke up early enough in her farmhouse, you would catch her uh, putting her hand on the pictures of her grandkids and praying one by one. Uh, she has a, a journal after journal of uh, prayers uh, that she had prayed and things that she had thought through. And uh, we were just with her a, a couple months ago uh, celebrating her over 90th birthday. I mean, this woman had just lived, and uh, we got word yesterday uh, that she had passed away. And um, so I, I've started, because I'm, I'm going to be speaking at the funeral on Saturday, I've, I've started talking to all the cousins and all the grandkids. And um, literally, no one can remember one, not one negative moment in her entire life. Like, the, the, she never yelled, like, with her, she was, like, never covetous, like, literally, like, I, she might have been near blameless, like, we know she's not. Um, but every single person that I talked to, including uh, uh, Brian uh, McBride, uh, our, our drummer, uh, married into the family, married my sister, and he even said uh, earlier, he's like, the best lady I've ever met in my life. Every single person has said that she had an unbridled joy. I mean, you got around this woman, and her joy was infectious, her, her heartbeat. I mean, she was always the supreme optimist. Uh, my uncle was telling me a story earlier today that, that he came in from the field one time from the farm, and his leg was nearly severed off, and the words of Grandma Nelvi were, at least you're not dead, right? Like, celebrate, <laughs> celebrate, you know? And uh, she just had a way of always pointing directions into that. A joy is a powerful thing. I would say it one step further, it's an unbelievably powerful thing. And listen, we get the incredible opportunity to open up to an epistle, a letter, a book of the Bible that is well known as the most joyful letter of all of Paul's, and many would say the most joyful uh, letter written in the, in, the whole book of, uh, in the whole Bible collected. 
Philippians is filled with joy. It has over 50 mentions of Christ, uh, 15 of just the word joy. We see Paul's instant affection of these people. I mean, this, this letter is packed. And I'm telling you right now, I was excited about studying this this summer. But as I started studying for this first text, I'm telling you right now, like God can come in this place tonight and do incredible things. So I'm going to pray for that. We're going to open our Bibles to Philippians or your phones as it were. We're going to study and we're going to watch what God will do tonight in joy and in truth. Amen? All right. So God, please, like only you can tonight, I pray that you will come teach us, encourage us, challenge us, convict us, and mostly God, show your glory here tonight in your great name and all of God's people said, amen. So open to Philippians. Here we go. We're going to do it in about 11 weeks, which is, which is a, a hefty pace for us. That means every night we're going to have to make up some ground, okay? Tonight we're going to study 11 verses, which is nearly a record for us. Um, so I'm excited about that. Philippians chapter 1, let's start here in verse 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we find out first who authored this. You don't have to be from the school of Captain Obvious to, to contend that certainly Paul was the author and his loving companion and disciple Timothy somehow played a hand in this letter. We also see right away who this letter is written to, to the who. Come on, to the who? To the saints. Now, this is a confusing word in our culture, especially here in St. Louis. There's a lot of confusion about what a saint is. Okay, the biblical case for a saint is someone who has been bought by the blood of Jesus, who has been regenerated by the Spirit of Christ, and who is now living for Christ. It's, it's not an escalated uh, human role. Okay, a, a saint is someone who is saved, who is a follower of Jesus. So this letter is written from Paul. Timothy had a hand in it to all the believers in Philippi. And oh my dear goodness, Philippi. Seriously, are you guys ready to go? Come on, are you guys ready to go? All right, uh, first, cue the map. Check this out, okay? There's Philippi, all right? You'll see just to the south, uh, Colossae, which we just left, uh, the letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians. You'll see just for highlighted purposes and reference point, Jerusalem there in the lower right-hand corner, but Philippi is, it's in Europe. Okay, so uh, Ephesus, uh, Colossae are all in what's called Asia Minor. But Philippi is in a different area of the world. It's in a different continent, as it were. It's in Europe. Now, check this out. Most letters, we don't see how the church got planted. We don't have a detailed recourse about why uh, Paul or how uh, the believers came to Christ in that area of the land. But in Philippi, we have an exact record of how this movement of Christ began in this area. Acts chapter 16, check this out, all right? And they went, did Paul and Silas, through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when, in Acts 16, they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. I think you're, you're seeing the rhythm and the pattern here. God is certainly directing them somewhere. So, uh, passing by Mysia, they went down to uh, Troas. Now, next slide, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, which is the province uh, that this area of the world is in, that uh, Philippi was in, a man of Macedonia was standing there urging and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us in the vision Paul sees. And when Paul had seen the vision, let's look at this. Immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I want you to understand one thing. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, has yet to make entrance into Europe. Now, this has been like a monumental realization for me. Uh, were there Jews in Europe? Potentially. But the message of salvation through Jesus and not through rules and regulations, in other words, the message of the new covenant, that now by the blood of Jesus we're saved and not by the following of rules, that message had yet to get to Europe. And clearly you can see 
that God is directing them there. Listen, to uncharted territory. This, for many of you, would be like the scariest part of your entire life. If God had called you to go to some land that had never uh, maybe even heard of the name Jesus outside being a prophet or a teacher, they certainly never connected it with being a savior. For some of you, like this automatically is creating some anxiety. Like, how, how, like what would you even do? Like, like, how would you even communicate? What would you even say? Well, thankfully, uh, Acts chapter 16 tells us. Check this out. Unbelievable. So, setting sail from uh, Trous, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, which is like an intermediate island, and, uh, and the following day to, to, to Neapolis, and from there to where? Come on. Philippi, Acts chapter 16. This is in about 49 AD, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a huge piece of history, a Roman colony. Okay, I'm going to teach through that here in a second. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, look at this, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. They just suppose. Now, let me explain this. In a city, if there are not 10 men, then there cannot be a synagogue. In other words, as Judaism was being formed, part of the requirements of having a synagogue was that there would be 10 men and then all their families that would form the synagogue. Well, clearly, Paul knows there's not 10 believing in Christ men, in this case, or even in an understanding of Judaism, in Philippi. So he's like, maybe by the river, okay? Down by the river, check this out, where we suppose there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the who? To the women who had come together. An unbelievable moment of a shout out to those of you here who are females. The women are gathered to pray. I'm serious. Like my grandma, an unbelievable woman of prayer. Many of you in this room, tremendous women of prayer. And the launch of the gospel in Europe opens up with women in prayer. Okay? Check out what happens next. Crazy. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of uh, Thyatira, a seller. And those of you guys who studied Acts with us, we always made a joke of this. She was a seller of purple goods, okay, which, which was like a symbol almost of, of her wealth. She, uh, you know, purple was a, a color of royalty. And so she sold, as we said many times in our study of Acts, purple goods, okay. She was a worshiper of God. Now, this is Yahweh, yod Hey, vod Hey. This is the Old Testament understanding of God yet to hear about Jesus. The Lord opened her heart. Come on now. Can I make that say anything else? Okay, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Let's make one note. Paul doesn't come in and start playing tic-tac-toe in Philippi. You see what I'm saying? Listen, some of our greatest fears or some of our greatest contentions in evangelism is that evangelism can only be done relationally. Well, this seems relational, but it's not taking very long. Why? Because God is the agent of salvation. Whenever God desires to open eyes and open hearts and preach the gospel, that's what happens. He opens her heart, and look at this. She's paying attention to what Paul said, and I guarantee you he wasn't talking about the weather. That's kind of a dig at my, my family. Um, Heidi was, was raised on a farm, and I, I love the farm piece, even though I'm not a farmer. My son Maddox says he wants to be the farmer. Heidi is enamored with weather because of growing up on a farm. Is anyone else here just enamored by the weather? You know? It's like, like we'll be driving down the road and she'll be like, yeah, in three days it's supposed to rain. I'm like, what? I don't even. She's got like a, like a do... she, you know, she sticks like a Doppler on top of our minivan, you know? <laughs> like, we can't go on a road trip without. Dave, what's his name? Dave Murray? Nice. Heralded as God in the Lay family. Here we go. <laughs> they pay attention to what was said by Paul. Look at this. And after she was what? She was baptized. So apparently she hears the message of Jesus, and then she says, like, I want this Christ. Do you know what this is? The first conversion in Europe, period. Isn't this crazy? Where is it? In Philippi. Like, do you know where explorers left from to come to the 1-800-USA? Like, do you know where they left from? Okay, as far as I can tell in my history book, they left from somewhere around Europe. That means the entrance of the gospel even here tonight is traced back to the salvation of Lydia. And we think 
that our evangelistic efforts for the glory of God are menial and, 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 and don't matter and aren't significant. And isn't it incredible that not wasting any time, not talking about anything else, he comes in, finds women that are gathered to pray, and he starts preaching the gospel, and people start getting saved. And not just Lydia, check this out, and her whole household as well. Like everybody in her household, because she was a seller of purple goods, it was a big old house, Okay. Listen, we find out later that the early church in Philippi was meeting in her home, so it must have been substantial enough. Everybody gets baptized in her house. Is anybody getting excited? Literally, the entrance of the gospel comes through in Europe, Philippi. Okay? Now, Acts 16 isn't done. Look at this. Okay? As well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. In other words, she's like, please stay here, incredible, the story's not over, verse 16, listen, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling, so in Philippi, soon after the salvation of Lydia, the entrance of the gospel into Europe, uh, they come on a woman that's possessed by a demon, and apparently the possession of the demonic activity in her is specific to fortune telling. And all of the people that own her, for lack of a better term, are making tremendous cash off of her possession. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God. Listen, let me remind you, uh, even the demons believe and shudder. Anyone know that word? Even the demons believe. There's a difference between belief in something that's real and calling that, that thing that is so, uh, so supposedly real king. There's a difference. Uh, Satan certainly didn't submit to the kingship of Christ, but believed and shuddered. So the possessed woman says, these, are, these men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim you, uh, uh, to you the way of salvation. Look at this, verse 18, it's hilarious. And this she kept doing for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. Isn't this hilarious? So he just lets this possessed lady like follow him for days, saying, these guys are preachers of the gospel, you know. He's, and finally, he's like, I'm done with you. Look what he does. He turns and said to the spirit. It's like, why did he wait three days? Maybe because Satan was being a phenomenal witness tool at, the, at this point, right? These men are here, preachers of the gospel, right? He turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And what happened? It came out of her that very hour. Well, what happened after this? is her owners get a little bit distressed. They're angry. They're frustrated. Why? She was, money, she was a money-making opportunity. So they take Paul and Silas. They bring them into the court. They end up getting them judged. And what happens is Paul and Silas end up getting whipped in Philippi. I want to make sure you understand what this would have looked like. Again, they just got here. The entrance of the gospel in the Philippi is masked by salvation and persecution. So they get whipped, they get, I mean, like literally their back, the flesh of their back is ripped open. And then the scripture records, they get put in stocks. Now in a Philippian jail, the stocks would have stretched their arms and stretched their legs. And later on your own, you can read what happens in Acts 16, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you anyway, okay? Uh, Paul and Silas in the prison cell, they start singing. Flesh opened in stocks, limbs being stretched. In a Philippian jail, they begin, the scripture says, to sing hymns. And all of a sudden, God opens, flings open the, da- uh, the doors of the Philippian jail, looses the stocks, and, and Paul and his, co- co- uh, his companion, they're standing there. And in a crazy event in the scripture, the jailer who is in charge says that he's going to commit suicide because he knows if these guys get out, that he's going to die anyway. And we see in the subtitle in Acts 16, the conversion of the Philippian jailer, an unbelievable story. The entrance of the gospel into Europe comes through Philippi. Now, doesn't this all of a sudden change the game, studying Philippians? Come on. Like the gospel makes root through this very strategic city into Europe. And then hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later into uh, the land that you now sit. So I want to show you some pictures just to put some images on Philippi. Okay, next slide. Uh, so ton of archaeological remains that still represent, this is actually downtown Philippi here. Okay, it doesn't seem so booming now, but certainly in the day, 
Uh, you can imagine that it was a strategic, good city. Uh, I'm going to talk more about its history here in a second. Uh, next slide, there's still a huge amphitheater that is in Philippi. Uh, this looks very similar to the one that's in Ephesus. Uh, apparently, there was a good model for this. Now, why is Philippians so riddled by persecution so quickly? Okay, I want to tell you about their history. In 42 B.C., an epic battle ensues between Cassius and, is it Brutus? Those guys that were the assassins of Julius Caesar and Octavian and Mark Antony. So in this epic battle, it's called the Battle of Philippi, 42 BC, they go at it. Mark Antony and Octavian win. And what happens to Philippi is it becomes at that point a, just like we saw in Acts 16, a Roman colony. Now, a Roman colony is a little bit different uh, from a Roman province or even certain Roman cities. A Roman colony doesn't have to pay taxes to Rome. A Roman colony gets certain freedoms that Rome doesn't, but to institute the colony, what Rome did, okay, both emperors Claudius and then later in 54 uh, AD, Nero, they sent war veterans of this battle to build the colonization of Rome and Philippi. Now, even before that was happening, this city was huge. It was a massive, and I mean this not as a pun, but literally, it was a massive gold mine, okay? The city had tremendous gold in it, and so it was a trade route. You had to pass through there because of the mountainous terrain. It was a very strategic city. And so these veterans of war set up the colony of Rome. Well, what happens is Nero, not being such a kind emperor, decides that he wants to be called Lord and Savior, He says, everyone under Rome in the empire is going to call me Lord and Savior. Well, what started happening is that started striking a chord with the believers in the land who had a different Lord and Savior. And so the Philippian church was under tremendous persecution because there were believers like Lydia, her family, and many others who are standing up against the Roman Empire and saying, he is not Lord and Savior. We have a real Lord and Savior. Nero and Claudius will die. Our king is risen and he's coming again. And so as the gospel is making entrance into Europe, this Philippian church grows in Paul's heart a huge affection because he literally is watching before before his eyes what I believe he understands. He's watching the absolute explosion of the message of Jesus. So I pause. Does the explosion of the message of Christ excite you enough to want to share it? I fear that in our culture and maybe even in your life, you don't think that the explosion of Christ is necessary. We live in a very clouded A culture that appears like Christianity, even though there's certainly rocky days, it seems like Christianity still has a stronghold. Well, those of you who have done enough reconnaissance to step back from that, you know that that is not the case. You know that the land that we live in, the culture that we live in, is in desperate need of the gospel. Listen, we love Ecuador. We're partnered with Ecuador. We're going to keep going to Ecuador, and we're going to keep preaching the gospel in Ecuador. But I want to make sure you understand, the gospel is needed in St. Charles right now, in St. Peter's, in O'Fallon, in St. Louis, in Wentzville even, and all these cities that are around us in desperate need of the gospel. But a bunch of Christians sitting on their rumps, acting as if the gospel has already been spread acting as if believing in, communicating even, that there's no need for me to share anymore because someone else has or, listen, someone else will. But my friends, my brothers and my sisters, if he's resurrected, then I want to tell you something. you got a message. If he's dead, then you don't. If he's dead, you have no reason to communicate anything about the gospel. Okay? This, this gathering is pointless. The songs that we sing don't matter. But if he has risen, if he is alive, then they better not be able to shut us up with the hope of the gospel. And that's what was happening in Paul. He's like, I don't care where I'm going. 
He's like the Spirit saying, don't go here. The Spirit saying, hop on a ship, go across the Aegean Sea. Let's land in Philippi, and I'm not going to waste no time because my Jesus is resurrected, and so i got a message to share. That, that's what was on his heart. And I, I, I'm seeing in my own heart, too, this disdain against that, and so it must be then a, an unbelief. People say all the time, well, I'm just fearful to evangelize. I think it comes back to a lack of faith. If he really is resurrected, don't you think, like, the doors would be busting down to this place? We'd be like, get us out there so that we can share. Philippi is an insanely important city. And now, all of a sudden, our whole journey through Philippians just got flipped upside down. The first converts in Europe. Okay? So because of his affection, here's what Paul goes on to say in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He's writing this similar in a similar time frame to when he wrote uh, Colossians. And where did he write Colossians from? Anyone remember? From where? Okay, from a, a Roman. Uh, some believe he was under house arrest. I personally believe uh, it was more uh, similar to a prison. He, he's writing behind prison doors. Okay? So he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my, my prayer with joy. Every time I think about you, I think and have tremendous joy in my heart because we shared in something, and he focuses on that sharing in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We share in something. Now, listen, church, can I, can I share, can I be 100% vulnerable and honest? We can convince ourselves that we share in the mission of the gospel. We can convince ourselves of that while at the same time being confused by actually just being unified in relationship. In other words, one of the powers of the church community, I would even say one of the greatest blessings of this particular community, is family. It doesn't take long here to build relationships. Okay, and to see yourself as a part of a family and to feel connected and 21 lot families that meet on Sundays, like this feeling of I can be vulnerable and share my sin and not be judged but be loved, like that's very, that happens easily here. And so what starts happening is it's very easy then for us to focus inward. Very easy for us to say we're, we're unified in love, we're unified in relationship. And my friends and my brothers and sisters, that's not an errant thing, that's not a bad thing, but... If our unity is only in relationship, if our unity isn't in mission, then we're not really the body of Christ being the body of Christ in a lost and dying world. Those of you who have ever played a sport, I'll even include marching band, um, maybe you were a cheerleader, okay? Like you, you had this sense of camaraderie. Some of you in here are veterans, of wars. There is this crazy sense of camaraderie when you're fighting towards a common goal. Paul shares in this awesome unity and fellowship, koinonia is the Greek word, with his church in Philippi because they shared in something together. And what they shared in was persecution and love and partnership. We come to find out later that the church in Philippi supplies Paul the most resources of any other church that he ever planted. They send massive amounts of money. In fact, we find out later that as he's in prison, Philippi raises funds. They send funds up to uh, Paul because if you don't know this, in a Roman prison, it ain't like ours. They don't serve food. So your own have to take care of you. We find out later that uh, there was uh, those, a group of folks who were sent from Philippi to take care of Paul while he was in prison. Okay? So this is that relationship. And that relationship, he takes one step further in verse 6. Check this out. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And I am sure of this. Oh, my goodness. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Very misquoted. Very misunderstood. I've heard people use this verse in a hundred wrong ways. Right? Like, you get, like you, you get a new job. Okay? And it starts getting tough, and I've heard people in this context, hey, he who began a good work, he's going to see it through. Well, yeah, I don't know what you mean by that. You mean like he's always going to have his job? Or, or someone starts getting sick? 
hey, listen, he who began a good work, right, he's going he's gonna to see that thing through. Can we agree what verse 6 is saying? He who started a work in your salvation is going to see it through in the day of Christ. In other words, he is coming back. Now, why would this verse have been so pertinent for the church in Philippi? Because they're in persecution. They need hope. They need to know that, that the promise of Christ's return is coming, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We're great starters, aren't we? Man, we can start things like who done it, you know? Start diets, start relationships. We'll start all kinds of things, and I think you'd agree with me, we are incredibly poor finishers. We don't finish well. Okay, my last diet lasted about 20 minutes. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, all right, today I'm not gonna eat pizza. 20 minutes later, nah, I don't, I, you know, I gotta, gotta eat something, you know, like a. Right? I'm so thankful, I'm so thankful that God's ways is way greater than ours, that he does not act or live or minister like us. I'm so thankful that he didn't start a work in us, pursue us. The end of that Zacchaeus story, seek and save what was lost. I'm so thankful he didn't do that. And then all of a sudden start to see us fail and fall. Hey, you're misrepresenting me. You shouldn't be struggling with this and that. And then all of a sudden, throw his hands in the air and say, you know what? I know that, I, I know that we thought we were in relationship and that I saved you, but I, I'm actually going to pull out of the relationship. I'm so thankful that he doesn't abandon the orphan that he already saved. He doesn't put the orphan back on the street. This is what we always say here at Matthias. Not once saved, always saved, but if saved, always saved. If you've been saved by the blood of Christ, then you are a son and a daughter and will spend eternity with him. Listen, for sure. He's building in this church that's being persecuted another confidence. He's coming back and you can have hope and rest assured in the blood of Jesus that you are saved by grace through faith. So trust that and now live in light of that. He'll finish it. Now some of you are like, yeah, 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 that whole, like, I watched Left Behind. <laughs> Kirk Cameron shaped my doctrine, you know. So Mark, is that, is that what it's going to look like? Are we going to, you know, have the mark of the beast? And are we going to, you know, have to deal with all the things that Left Behind so accurately, biblically portrays? Let me clue you in on a couple things, okay. If you base your doctrine on Christ's return on Left Behind, then you're, um, you're headed down a direction that is a very cultural, secular view of Christianity, Here's what we can rest assured in that he's coming back. Um, now, did Paul believe that Christ's return would be then? Maybe. It certainly seems like we have indicators of that the disciples believe that, that Christ would return quickly. Um, do we believe that here tonight, that it could be any day? Well, we certainly don't live like it. Let's be honest, right? Come on. If we knew that Christ was returning tonight, if he's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to be there about 10 after 10 tonight, Okay? I'm coming. I'm just, I'm wondering, I'm curious. What would the next two hours look like for you? Right? Probably filled with video games, right? Right? Probably go home, watch The Bachelor, okay? One last time, right? Right? Repent and be saved, all those, right? No, like what would we be doing? Wait, you're coming back? All of a sudden, we would like, it would be mass repentance, wouldn't it? It would be, hey, listen, Mark, let's just, man, we're going to start confessing sin, and we're going to make sure that there's nothing lingering out there. How do you not know that it's not 10 after 10 tonight? And some of you being funny would be like, well, you said 10 after 10, and he said no one's going to know, so he's definitely not coming at 10-10. <laughs> okay, what about 10-11? Oh, no, that's out now, too. Okay, so... <laughs> Anytime someone comes out with a prophecy of Christ's return, I'm always like, no, like, he need, he's not going to come now, right? Like, everyone stop talking, you know? Stop talking, you know? So the first piece of seeing Christ's return in this early part of Philippians is hope. But there's another one coming. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 7, check this out. It is right for me to feel this way, just in case any of his readers were in contention, you know, he's, he's affirming himself almost. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. 
for you are all partakers with me of grace. It's the thing, listen, it's the thing that separates you and I from every other world religion. We are partakers together of grace. We haven't earned it. There's not one more thing that we can do to gather his affection. We are saved by grace. I want to contend to you that there's a certain level of humility then that comes along with that. There's a certain level then of I don't deserve anything. There's a certain level then of love and urgency. So I just want to remind you again that of the commonalities that the believers in this room have, we have the spirit in us, the scripture says has sealed us, and what we also have together is we are partakers, sharers of grace. So he said, it's right for me to feel this way because we're together partakers of grace. Look, both in my imprisonment. So he's alluding to persecution in Philippi. Some of you are in prison there, just like I am in prison in Rome. And in, I love this, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, can I, can I, can I go a little bit here? Okay. Now, okay, for the few of you, let's do it, all right? Like early on in my ministry, I got really... I had some heartache towards those who were really defensive about the gospel. And so, like, they were the kinds of people that, you know, at the lunch table, if there was an argument, you could see their anger as they shared about Jesus. Like, someone would say, oh, yeah, well, well, if Jesus was this, then why would he do that? And they, in the name of Christ, would, like, would stand up, and they'd begin barking out gospel, and they, like, their eyes would get weird, you know, and they'd be pointing some fingers. At times, they would even say, look, if you don't believe this, you're going to hell, and and I'm not saying that, that that not necessarily is true, but it's definitely not a good evangelism tactic. If you've ever tried that, you know how that goes, okay? Listen, I, I just really love you, and you're going to go to hell. Did you know that? If you don't believe, you have a nice day now, right? Like it, it's like the anti-relational evangelism, okay? Again, it's true, but it's not a good line opener, okay? Now, I don't think that's the case here. I think when he talks about confirming and defending the gospel, listen, he's talking about a life. He's talking about a life that believes so deeply and richly that all of these things are true. He's talking about a life that the disciples struggled to understand when he said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. Now, what did that mean? Do, do you see the disciples in Acts or the apostles as they go? Do you see them like bucking the system? No, they take persecution. Again, like we say all the time, or 10 of 11 killed because of their faith. Their defense was their life. Their defense was, he's real, so I'm willing to die. I do not need to make a defense of the gospel in an angry, vocal way so that you will or will not believe, but what you will see from my life and what you will hear in my grace-filled, loving preaching is that Christ is real. That's the defense. And so some of you have very much misguided relationships because you've been that angry Christian holding a picket sign in your workplace or in relationships or in your family. Listen, we defend the gospel by showing from our life that we're willing to die for it. But Mark, how can we die for it in America? I'll tell you how you can die for it. You're willing to be hated. You're willing to be made fun of. You're willing to be the guy that doesn't laugh at the joke because it defames women or is, goes against the gospel and on and on. He says, we're partakers of this. We share in this. Look at this. this verse 8 is insane, beautiful. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all of the affection of Christ Jesus. This, this has gone way beyond pleasantry in a note. Like he's way beyond grace and peace to you. This is and shows the power of the relationship between Paul and this church in Philippi. And so now in the final three verses, we see the second reason for bringing up the second coming. Verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Isn't it incredible that he starts there? That your love, 
that you continue to share in the fellowship with one another, but simultaneously spread the love of Christ, that your love may not be ending, that it may keep going and abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, love not being stupid or silly, but with the wisdom that comes from Christ. In verse 10, our hinge point tonight, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be, what's the word? Pure. Pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The second mention in the first 11 verses of the second coming. The first is to bring hope. The first is to say he's coming back. And the second is to say you better get ready. Purity in preparation for the coming of Christ is essential. And certainly by the blood of Jesus, we're all made pure. Amen? Sins are washed clean as far as the east is from the west. But scripture says that faith without works in James 2 is dead. So in light of the second coming of Christ, there's still to be something that happens in our lives. That's why Paul ends with verse 11, filled then with the fruit of righteousness. Show the purity that's happening in your life as you prepare for a second coming. Showing the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Have you guys ever babysat before? Okay. Uh, I, my mom's here tonight, and um, thankfully she, uh, she allowed me to babysit at a pretty, pretty young age. Okay. I apparently had you know, convinced her enough that I was responsible and uh, I remember a couple times specifically, I'm not going to go into one of the most famous babysitting stories that I had, but Janae, my sister, who's a part of the church as well, I was feeding her peas, and she ended up getting, at a very young age, Janae, how old were you? Are you here? Oh, she's an ML Kids, okay. She got a pea lodged in her nose um, when she was a young child that had to be dislodged by the ER, okay. So that was one of my early babysitting adventures. It was off to a good start. But I can remember, listen, I can remember babysitting. And you're thinking your parents are coming home at 10, let's say. And you get, not on the cell phone yet, but you get on the house phone, the call at 8. Hey, listen, we just did dinner. We're going to go ahead and come home a little early. Well, they're two hours early. Oh, and hey, we're just down the street. We end up going at a restaurant close. We'll see you in five minutes. If you're a babysitter and the house is is a complete disaster, you know what this feels like, right? Like, I mean, I, I remember moments, right? You're like looking around. I mean, there's like, you know, toilet paper hanging down from the ceiling fans. You didn't, you forgot how to, you know, clean up the diaper. So there's like open diapers that people have stepped in that's now on the carpet, you know? I mean, right, it's just like disarray. Listen, and now you've got five minutes to clean it up, right? So you're just like throwing stuff in whatever closet is possible, you know, like you're like, you're going over to the kids and acting like they took a bath. You're like dipping them in the, in the toilet water just in the, in the hopes that their hair looks clean, you know. You do whatever it takes to make sure when the parents walk in the house, you're there with open arms, smiling as all could be as the children are behind you singing Kumbaya, right? Like, like that's the picture. Oh, look, we just did a devotional, you know. <laughs> Fancy that. You guys home so soon? You know, come on in. Join us, right? You got like a fake campfire that's there and everyone's laughing. You can approach the second coming of Christ like that. You can think that the fruits of righteousness will all of a sudden one day get serious. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Mark one day. I'm so thankful to be in a church body that has so many college students, college age students that are fired up for the Lord. Because they're saying, like, I, I don't want to wait. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I mean, I, it's like, I don't, I don't want to wait. I, like, I'm not, it's time now. Okay? But what about you? Here's what the Gospel of Luke says, Jesus addressing this issue. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. There's no time to waste. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks, right? 
The kinds of people who are literally just pacing in the entryway, waiting on the master to come home. What does that say? It says that they believe that he's coming back, that they're living like he's coming back, that they're not doubting that his return will be in their lifetime. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at, at the table and he will come and serve them. Next slide, beautiful as this goes on. If he, if he comes in the second watch or in the third watch, like when you're least expecting it, late at night, 1 a.m., if he comes in that watch, blessed are those servants if he finds them awake. But know this. That if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. At first it seemed weird to me that Paul would mention the second coming of Christ in the first 11 verses of Philippians. But tonight I have tremendous clarity. What I fear in most of us is we have hope of his return, but we're not living like he's coming back. The hope peace we have, but the purity peace? But Mark, like, am I going to have to like be completely, you know, am I going to have to be sinless for a period of time if he comes back? No, we're saved by the blood of Christ, but our lives are the defense of the gospel here and now until he comes back. Our lives preaching the word because of the righteousness that's been filled by the fruit of the spirit in our life, those are the things that are defending and confirming the gospel now. It's people like you and I that are showing the world that he is real, that he resurrected, and that he will return. And we believe it could be any hour, any minute. It could be now. Here's what I know. Next slide. Everybody excited about that? I don't want this to be the rallying cry of Christians who applaud the truth. I pray like I believe Paul was praying for the church in Philippi that this would be the reality of a bunch of people in the house who are ready and dressed and awaiting in the foyer for the return of Jesus. So what are the impurities then, my friends, in your life? What right now are the things that are showing themselves and proving themselves to be the aspects of a lack of urgency in your life? What are the impurities that if tonight God could completely purge them out of you? If tonight that we would and could believe that the old man is gone and that the new man has come and that our sins have been crucified on the cross of Christ, what would be those things that tonight you would say, God, please take this. God, help me live like you're coming back. Not just the hope or the belief that you are. Help me live like it. What would be the things that you would pray for him to take away? And do you believe that he could? Do you believe that the impurity of self-image, the impurity of turning to alcohol as a means of comfort, the impurity of your gossip or covetousness, the impurity of your lust, the impurity of your selfish motive at work, the impurity of your lack of missionality, and on and on and on. Do you believe tonight that the person of Christ can do something about that? This letter for us, filled with joy and affection from Paul to a church, gives you and I the opportunity to not just prepare, not just to make ready, but for you and I all of a sudden to take a urgent desperate look at how it is that we're living on this earth here and now. And every single week that goes by in Philippians will continue to chip away at our lack of urgency and our desperate need to turn and funnel to Christ. Let's stand together. Come on. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray in expectation and empower. 
I'm going to ask God right now to do incredible work, the thing that you've been holding on to in terms of impurity, the thing in your life that has seemed inescapable, like I, I can't release this, there's no way, it's got too much of a grip on me. Let's pray in expectation and empower that Christ can do it. That he can take those things. That tonight he can prepare us for his coming. That he can make our lives a defense. Let's pray in expectation and in power right now. Come on. God, we're grateful that you're coming back. We're grateful that your return is real. We can't wait there to be no more tears or pain or hurt or confusion. I pray, God, right now, you would help us believe in that second coming, not just in a hopeful sense, but in a sense that would drive our life by your spirit. So I pray in power right now, God, that you would purge us of the self-centeredness, of the loathing of the ways, God, that our lives have become so centric around our own universe, will you purge us of all of those impurities? And instead, now tonight, right now, God, would you stir in our hearts a desire to be made ready for your return? Literally, God, take these sins, stir repentance in us, and remind us of the grace that you extend. So on both sides tonight under the screens, the meal awaits believers in the room. Broken bread that represents the broken body of Christ. A cup for you to take a piece of that bread and dip it in, representing the blood of Jesus that you've been saved in. I pray tonight as we share in this meal, as partakers of grace together, that we will share in all the things that come with Christ that will celebrate what he can do, and that these would be walks not of shame or condemnation, but walks of victory. Your king's coming back, and he's going to take with him all of those who confess his name. Church, come and share in this meal as the Lord leads.